Uh, Let me just pray, and then we'll open the Word of God together this morning. Fathers, as uh, Brian has already prayed, as we thought on Christ and humility, um, Lord, I I pray, God, for humble hearts, God, to take your word and to believe it and embrace it, Um, even when it doesn't make sense, God, because we know that it is life and it is what gives us hope because of how it testifies to Jesus and so, Father, we pray that you would open eyes and illumine ears. God, help us to see the, the glories of the gospel new and afresh, to see your great working in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying that there, there are plenty of things in life that you don't fully understand, but you trust are true, and you use them and, and believe in them. For instance, right, just, just take your phone if you will. I don't care what kind of phone you have, whether it's a, uh, a dumb phone or a smartphone or an Android or an iPhone. Um, it's got some intelligence there that I think is difficult for any of us to fully grasp what's going on inside the phone. <clears throat> and yet you use it and you trust it to communicate with your family and friends. Or, or take the automobile, a car. You, you can lift the hood and you might know a little bit about how belts run around and how you got to put gas into it. But but there's, there's not everything that we understand about all the, the functionings of the, the engine and the, and the brakes. And if you're anything like me, I'm mechanically disadvantaged. You don't know how it all, how it all exactly works. But you trust it to transport you from place to place. Or, or a plane. Even there's another transportation, right? You, you will jump on a plane and you will go. And, and how that, that thing gets off the ground because of aerodynamics, you don't quite understand. And how the, how the pilot up front can control all things, you don't understand, but you, you trust it. Or even little things like an egg. Right? I, I have eggs normally most mornings, and I, and I, I crack the egg and put it on there, and this, this gooey sort of liquid then turns white and tasty. And, and I don't understand how the molecular things of that work together, but I, I trust it and I eat it. Or maybe water. Water gets pumped into your home, and all you need to do is just turn on that faucet. But I don't understand how all the water exactly gets there. I just know that it is there and that I I drink it. Well, this morning we're going to delve into some truths about God that you may not fully understand or fully grasp, but God calls you to trust them, to trust what he says of himself. In fact, I might go to this. It's not just that they're difficult to understand or grasp. They are actually impossible to understand or grasp. And yet we see what we can understand. And then there's some things we can't understand. And what Paul calls us to is, is really trust the Lord through that. And these things come, of course, from Romans chapter 9. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 9. We've been preaching through Romans, uh, just paragraph by paragraph, uh, week by week. And we come this morning to Romans 9, verses 19 through 21. My message this morning is entitled, Is God Fair? Because that's what Romans 9, 19 to 21 are really talking about. That's, that's the question that Paul has for us. Um, now, before we actually read the text, I do want us to catch the context. Because if we miss the context, we'll... We'll miss these verses. The main subject of Romans 9 through 11 has to do with the unbelief of Israel. 
And their unbelief brings into question the power of God's word. Israel was given the, the adoption, the glory, the, the covenants, they're given the law, they're given the promises, and yet despite all these great blessings, they were unbelieving. And, um, and, and the question comes, well, what happened to all those promises? And, and particularly, if they failed for Israel, will they fail for us? I mean, we've been given tremendous promises in, in Christ, and can we embrace them? And, and if Israel didn't get them then how can we be assured that we get ours? And Paul says emphatically in chapter 9, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word has not failed. Even though Israel, predominantly, is in unbelief, God's word has not failed. And the reason is because not all Israel is Israel. You can see that in verse 6. This is his first explanation, which he says over and over and over again, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, not all the physical descendants of Israel are spiritual descendants of Israel. It's only the spiritual Israel who receives the promises. Isaac and Ishmael were children of Abraham, but only Isaac received the promises. Jacob and Esau were sons of Isaac, but only Jacob received the promises. Isaac and Jacob were chosen over Ishmael and Esau, not because of goodness in them, Not because of good works that they would do. Not because of foreseen faith, but because of divine choice. And that's what Paul's point is in verse 11. And though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then Paul comes up, he anticipates the objection. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, there, there is something to our minds when we see God choosing one over another that leads us to think, well, that's not right. That, that's not just. <clears throat> and Paul answers that. And the very fact that we see that means that we understand Paul's logic. Because if it makes sense to us, like if God's salvation totally makes sense, like, oh, well, yeah, well, Jacob was better than Esau. Or, or Isaac, yeah, he, he believed and in, in Ishmael didn't. That's how we explain it. Paul could have explained it that way, but that's not what he was saying. He was saying, no, no, no. See, salvation comes from God. And it seems unjust. Because Paul could have explained how Things help us to understand how how Jacob was deserving. But as it is, God's electing grace is what makes the determination between Isaac and Ishmael, between Jacob and Esau. And to us, it seems unjust. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then in verses 14 through 18, he explains the injustice. And very insightful, he doesn't explain the injustice based upon Isaac and Ishmael or Jacob and Esau. He doesn't go into that. Rather, he basically says, a summary of it, verse 18. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he will. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, on the one hand, you seem like that, that doesn't really answer the question. Is there injustice with God? Well, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He doesn't quite seem to answer the question. And that's why in verse 19 and following, he, he continues along this same line. And what I've talked about, he's talking about the, the fairness of God. Look at verse 19. You will say then to me, 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's the same question as last week. Last week, my message was entitled, Is God Just? And so we answered that question. And this week, is God fair? I just tried to change the terms a little bit. But really, it's the same question coming again because Paul knows that verses 14 through 18, the way he answered the question, you're not going to say, oh, yeah, God's just. You're going to come out saying, how can it be? How can that really be fair? Well, let's consider how he answers the question. He says this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, when you consider that text, I hope the first thing you see is all the questions. In fact, how many questions are in these verses? Do you you count them? How many questions? Dallas is four. Five. There are five questions. Okay? There they are. Three verses, five questions. Why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you to answer back to God? Will the molders say, why have you made me like this? And has not the potter the right over the clay? And what I want to do this morning by way of outline is just use these five questions to um, just make five statements that help to clarify each of these questions. And in the end, I hope to give you a fundamental answer to this question. Is God fair? And here's verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? And here's my affirmation. God finds fault. Because it's a question, right? How do, why does he still find fault? Well, let's, let's establish that he does find fault. I mean, that's the reality of life, right? God sees our sin. He holds us accountable for our sin. And he will judge us for our sin. I mean, you cannot read the Bible and come to any other conclusion than this, that God finds fault with us. That's Paul's talked about that in Romans, Romans chapter one. He begins with the whole our accountability before God for our sin. Romans 118, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And rather than responding to the revelation that God has given, people hate that. They reject it. They turn away from that and they are under the wrath of God for their unbelief. In other words, that God is angry with sinners. Anger is another lesser word for wrath. He's angry with sinners. He finds fault with them and he will punish them. And the punishment comes in various forms. In Romans 1, the punishment comes and says, okay, if you want your own way, you have your own way. Let it go. There you go. In Romans chapter 2, verse, verse 5, Paul speaks about this greater day. Well, you go your own way now and you reap the consequence of your sin, which is hard. But there's going to be a day... When I will judge, Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we see here in Romans and the rest of the Bible, sin has consequences. This life, it has devastation in the end because God finds fault with our, our sin. It will bring judgment, sin will. Adam and Eve, it brought judgment upon them and the whole world in the garden. In Noah's day, sin brought judgment upon the whole world except for Noah and his family. The Israelite generation refused to enter the land because of unbelief. 
were destined to die before they entered the land. In the days of Jesus, when the Messiah was unjustly crucified, God finds fault with that. And to our, to our day, when sin runs rampant, God finds fault. He sees sin. He judges sin. As Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul that sins shall die. And that's the question. But that's the affirmation. He does find fault. The question, though, of our text is why Does he still find fault? Well, let's continue on to see what what he says. Why does he find fault? And really, this only makes sense in light of the second question of verse 19. Because, or for, who can resist his will? How can God find fault? Why does God find fault? For who can resist his will? There's the second point. We cannot resist his will. Now, Of course, this doesn't mean that we can't rebel against the Lord. It doesn't mean that we can't resist his commandments. Even in Romans, Paul showed this in the case. In Romans 1, he speaks about those rebelling against the Lord. In Romans 3, this rebellion, he's shown to affect all of us. That we all have sinned and gone our own way. And even as believers, there is still a resistance to the revealed will of of God. He writes that in Romans 7:19, for I, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on, on doing. And so he's not talking about just just re- rebelling and resisting against uh, God in some some small way. He's talking about in the grand scheme, in the greatest scheme of all of earth, who can resist his will? And that's a um, a rhetorical question that says nobody can resist his will. We cannot resist his will. See, in this, this question, the scope of it, he's talking about God's sovereign will, what, what he decrees. And God is God, and God does whatever he pleases, and nobody can thwart his hand. So we might try to rebel, we might try to resist, and yet this ultimate will that he's talking about here, no one can thwart his hand. Okay, just Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. See, no one stops God, what he wants to do. Isaiah 14, verse 27. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The answer is nobody. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And when people rage and plot against the Lord's plans, as Psalm 2, verse 1 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And however much the kings and the rulers of, of the earth and the nations counsel together against the Lord and its anointed and, and trying to resist and rebel against God and trying to fight against him. Remember what Psalm 2.4 says? Our God is in the heavens and he what? What does he do? <laughs> you really think? You really think you can thwart my plans? You really think that you can rebel against me? God says, Psalm 2, 6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God rules and he reigns in this universe. He's the sovereign king. He does whatever he wants. And the strongest people on earth are the kings. They can do whatever they want in their country. You think about our president is accountable. 
He is accountable to Congress, the people who won't get elected. But a king is not. A king is a sovereign ruler over a nation, and he lives as long as he, he rules as long as he lives. And yet we read of the strongest people on earth, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's like, like, okay, we want the water to go this way, we want the water to go this way, and God just puts the boundaries, and the water just goes right where God wants it to go. And what's true of kings is true of all presidents and governors and mayors and bosses and fathers and mothers and children. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Every step you take is of the Lord. And regardless of how we might, might choose and scheme and make choices with our lives, ultimately it's God's will that's accomplished. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So, so our, our, our plans are many, but God will accomplish his will. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 19. Who can resist his will? Brings us really back to this question, is God fair? Because verse 18 says, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And if God does that, and if we cannot resist his will, and if God still finds fault, then what sort of God is this? Is he even fair? And the answer comes in verse 20. It's really instructive for us. It says this. Who are you, O man, that answers back to God? It's really a position of standing and authority. It has everything to do with us as the creature and God as the creator. And so this, my third point is simply this, that God is, is God. As creatures, we have no right to question the ways of our maker. If it doesn't make sense to us in our puny, pea-brained mind, it doesn't mean that we can question God and hold the God of the universe on trial. It is the utter act of pride to think that we as the creature can stand above God in arrogance, declaring him unjust for something that we don't understand. Now, now note here the way that Paul answered he could have explained how, you know what, yeah, but, but people can choose their own course and their own destiny and, and how it's totally of them. And see, it's, it's totally of them and they do whatever they want. And see, then God just punishes them for what it is. But he doesn't answer that way because that's not what he's saying. And if you in your mind say, okay, well, that's the way that it makes sense to me that God finds fault because we have the freedom, you've misunderstood Paul. Paul's answer is this. Is God fair? Shut up. You're a creature. He is God. Think about it. Do you realize there are things about God that we simply don't understand? Uh, we sang the Romans doxology. Turn over to Romans 9, 33 and through 36. The song, song just is, is these words kind of paraphrased in a little different way in a singable term. Look, look at how he's going to finish this section on Romans 9 through 11. He's going to say this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I want to focus your attention on verse 33. It says how unsearchable are his judgments 
and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, how much higher is God's wisdom than our wisdom? In fact, God's wisdom is so high that we cannot understand it. I love how the New Living Translation paraphrases this. Listen, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his wisdom and his ways. The wisdom of God's ways, the knowledge of his ways are so beyond us that we can't understand it all. And when it comes to this doctrine of sovereignty, there, there are many who can't understand it, therefore reject it. Rather than realizing that, I don't know how, if I can't resist his will, God still finds fault. I don't know. I just trust that that's the ways of a, of a God who's wiser than I am. And in humility, I'll repent and bow low and worship this God. I mean, think about some things that we can't even begin to understand. When God created the world, time, space, and energy, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning time, he created the heavens, space, and the earth, energy, mass. And when he created the world, he determined in an instant how gravity was going to work, how electromagnetic waves would interact to give us light. And as things went on, maybe on that first day, whatever, he designed the structures of atoms and molecules so they work the way they do, that you add one more proton to the, the nucleus and all of a sudden like, these elements change from being solid to liquid to gaseous. He, he, he thought through DNA and proteins to give us life and photosynthesis and, and he structured our planet perfectly with this atmosphere so as to give us life and the greatest of minds over thousands of years have only begun to understand these things that God created in an instant with his word. And, and to think that there's something that we can't understand about the morality of God and then to call him into question and to take him on the carpet and say, God, you're not fair. It's like totally missing the point. God is so far above us. We simply need to take the fact that the genuine reality, we can't resist his will, but God still finds fault in us. And God is God. And just because we can't figure it out doesn't give us any room to question his ways. We just simply take by faith that God is just. When, when Abraham didn't understand how God would destroy Sodom, the question came, Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Of course he will. Of course the judge of the earth will do what is right. And our, our call is to, to just trust that God is right and he will be right. Our, our role is to believe that somehow, in some way, God is perfectly fair in showing mercy to some and hardening others according to his own will. And really the next question helps to put the answer in perspective. Look at verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Here it is, point number four. God is the potter. And the potter has every right to do whatever he wants with a clay. I mean, Paul's essentially quoting from Isaiah 29.16. Listen to Isaiah 29.16. Isaiah says to the people of, of, of Judah, it says, you turn things upside down. Like, it, you just flip it. He says, shall the potter be regarded as the clay or the thing made should save its maker? 
He did not make me. Or, or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. The thing made, should he like, oh, he, God doesn't understand. Like, God understands very well. It's we who don't understand. And, and, and when people question God on these matters, or they become arrogant, or they won't embrace clearly what, like, say, verse 18 says, or, or even what those Proverbs I says about how, how the king's heart is channels of water, they're, just, they're lifting their own arrogance of their own intellect above what God has, has done and thereby has turned things upside down. All of a sudden, it's, it's the clay that's holding judgment over the potter. To cement this illustration in Jeremiah's heart, God sent Jeremiah down to the potter's house. He said, Jeremiah, you need to understand a few things. You need to learn some things. Why don't you go to the potter's house and learn some things there? Jeremiah 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. Jeremiah says, so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And I trust you've seen that. The, the potter is spinning at his wheel like this. And he's got the clay and he's got the water there. And, and just with his hands, he's moving and this clay is moving up. And it's, he's shaping it just exactly like he wants. He's, he's kind of working at it. And Jeremiah said this. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And so he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. In other words, he's making it, and it's like, ah, oh, that's not quite right. So he takes it, and he smashes it together, and then he, he forms it a little bit differently. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, interpreting what he's seeing here. Oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Like how God makes, how the potter shapes the clay. That's how God shapes us. This, this is God's reality. He is the potter, and he can do anything that he wants with us. And yet too often we forget this. Too often we forget when dealing with, with God's sovereignty is that we need to keep things in order, not turning upside down, that God is the potter and that we are the clay. You know, in fact, I, I have a mug here that I know some of you in the congregation have, but it's, a, it's just a mug made of pottery. It's got pottery symbols on this side, and it says on this side, he is the potter, and I am the clay. And, you know, I just want to give this to somebody who's kind of struggling with his doctrine, who says, you know what, I see what it says, how God is the potter, I am the clay, and I see that God is fair, but I can't quite understand it, but I need a reminder so if you come up to me, first person that comes up to me afterwards and says, you know what, that would really minister to me, my morning coffee, whatever I take, where it says that uh, he's the potter, I'm the clay, a continual reminder of that. I will give this to you. So I want to I give that to you. By just way of profession, it says, this is a hard doctrine. I mean, these aren't easy things. This is a hard doctrine, but I just need to know and understand and embrace and be reminded again that I'm the clay. But there's so many times when people arrogantly flip that and they think that their small brains being able to fit that big are able to match the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God. 
People think, oh, I got to understand it, and then I'll embrace the reality. And until I understand it, then I won't embrace that reality. How can we, re- if no one resists his will, how does God still find fault? Well, you can see the tone there of verse 20 is, I think, the, the key there. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It's like, who are you to think that? Because I think that there are legitimate ways for, for questioning this in a humble, submissive way that just says, God, I, I can't quite understand how it, how it works because it doesn't seem fair to me. But I'm, I'm open, God. Help me to learn and help me to understand. And here, here's what I would say is this Romans 11.33 says, it's going to be impossible. But basically what you're saying is saying, okay, God, I see these tracks, like these railroad tracks, and, and they're running down, and, and they go further and further and further down. But, but, but in the end, they look like they're together, but I don't see them together. And the more you study, perhaps the more closer they become, but you'll never see them together because they're only together in the mind of God. I, I love the story. Though about kind of showing how ridiculous it is when people resist against this doctrine. It's the, the illustration of, of the pots. And so I, I just I just read this for you. Am I, am I on here? I think okay, good. It says it was one of the greatest houses on the outskirts of the great city. The master managed it with a firm hand. He was a kindly lord, but he was a lord for all that. But one night, there was a violent disturbance in the pantry on the back of the third shelf. A surly earthen pot began to call in a loud voice for a great congress of the pots. At first, some of the others wanted to sleep. Who wanted to sleep told him, be quiet, be quiet. But as he was very angry, he refused to keep his peace. And it was not long before the others would listen to his complaint. And after listening to the complaint, it was a short time until they shared it. The word was spreading slowly through the entire house. The convocation was called. The parliament of the pots was begun. You know, this is better. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just stand here, Peter. So, he said, because it was in the middle of the night, the pots began to assemble in the, the large ballroom downstairs at the far end, away from the good master's chambers. And slowly they filled in ornate vases, kitchen and pantry pots, flower pots from the outside, and of course, off by themselves, the noisome chamber pots. That's humorous. When they were all assembled, a delicate vase from the entry hall spoke Why have we been summoned? The earthen pot from the pantry, whose name was Sullen, answered, The day of despotism is over. The final reckoning has come. It is time for the master of the house to settle accounts with us. We demand justice and we shall have it. And there was silence for a moment. And then a murmur of agreement ran through most of the assembled pots. Some, however, were clearly dismayed at the direction of events. The, va- the vase from the entry hall, her name was Charity, spoke again. But the master is very good to us. He, an envious hiss, ran through the assembled pots. Sullen turned on the vase with a snarl. Yes, indeed, the master's been good to you. And that is one of the grievous injustices with which he is inconsistent, which we insist that he correct. And off to one side, the chamber pots nodded in agreement. And one of them shouted, Sullen is right. Why shouldn't we be allowed in the entryway? And this outburst of radical egalitarianism seemed a bit much, even for Sullen, but he passed it without comment. 
He turned to continue to address the listening pots. Why do we need a master? Why do we need his rules? We do not need men. Pots are for pots. The assembled crowd roared with their approval. Pots are for pots. Pots are for pots. Pots are for pots. And Charity knew it would be useless to try to dissuade anyone. But she also knew the master and knew it would be folly to remain in the room. She nodded to some of her friends who were from the entryway, and they began to slide quietly out of the room. Here and there, other clear-minded pots were doing the same, but the rest were giving full attention to Sullen, clapping their lids enthusiastically. And Sullen had found his stride and was propagating his millennial vision from the future of the great house, a house where no pot had to contain things it did not want, where all pots had a say in how the house was governed, and when there was no discrimin- where there was no discrimination against crackpots, and where no shelf was overcrowded, where pots and kettles lived in racial harmony, and, there, when there, and where there was a chicken in every pot. Sullen had spent a lot of time thinking there in the pantry and knew exactly what he believed. He called it secular potism. He had waited for this moment for a long time, and his thoughts were boiling over furiously. And for the pots who remained in the room, it was a fine moment of exhilarating liberation. They eagerly caught at Sullen's intoxicating phrases and with zeal of new converts bellowed them back to him. Pots are the measure of all things. Government of the pots, by the pots, and for the pots. One pot, one vote. It was a moment of glory and he knew it. By this time, Charity and her friends were back in the front of the house. They were all very dismayed and somewhat frightened. But not for the master. Charity had just resumed her place on the table by the front door when she turned and there, coming down the staircase, was her master and he had an iron rod in his hand. I hope that puts things in perspective for you that God is the potter and fifthly, that we are the clay. That's what verse 21 says. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We are clay. It says in Genesis 2, verse 7, that we are made of the dust of the earth. And as clay, God has all the rights over us. He can make us and use us however he wills, and we cannot complain. I want to help burn this illustration in your mind just one more time with a, an illustration that <clears throat> I looked back and uh, I used this illustration 15 years ago when I was preaching. I just did a, a little series on Romans 9, was, was preaching this, and I talked to Yvonne yesterday. I said, do you remember this? And she says, yeah, I remember it. And uh, she even remembers some comments that someone made in, in the process of that, and I, and I hope so much to burn it in your mind for the next 15 years, you might remember this illustration. See, in our day and age, we're not into pottery. Oh, we have our, our coffee mugs, right? and we have our porcelain. But in the ancient days, pottery was everywhere. Pottery was their building blocks. They had cups and, and plates and cooking utensils and sinks and to- storage containers. We have uh, these big tubs were made of of clay, candle holders made of pottery. In fact, today in Israel, when you go, you learn much from all the pottery that they have because pottery lasts, but everything else doesn't. Well, I have uh, two items in my show-and-tell bag. Isn't it always with a show-and-tell bag? And um, we don't do pottery today. We do plastic. And so what I have here is I have, I have a picture frame. 
plastic picture frame I've put here in the, the picture of the church, right? You all look very lovely. Yep, I see you there. I see you there. And this is, this is such that it, it's beautiful, it's clear, it's lovely. I mean, you can easily see this placed on a, on a countertop someplace or on a, a desktop someplace. You, you could easily see in, in this sort of thing a, a family picture or a wedding picture or something like that. Just, just you're going to put it up to display for, for all to see. And we want people to see and behold, maybe not necessarily the plastic, but what's through the plastic. But the plastic has a very honorable place and position. But the second is a bit more unsightly. So kids, you know what this is? Thatcher's going like this. Thatcher, what do you do with this? Yeah, you clean the, actually, to be more, more right, you, you bring it to do your dirty work. Cleaning off the scum and the muck of the toilet residue that just wasn't passed away. And so that's, this cleans the toilet. Now, we don't place this on our desk, right? We don't place this on our, on our mantle for all to see. We want to tuck it away in behind the toilet someplace. As someone said when I shared this illustration, that's disgusting. But I hope you see it. I hope you see that, that, that we have right to do with plastic whatever we want. What right do plastic items have to object to their uses? This is like sullen, right? The, the pot that's crying out, no, we need to object, right? Everybody's fair, right? It's no fair that this one gets on the desk and we get behind the toilet. It's no fair. That's exactly the point that Paul is making here. It is not our place to say and object to the fairness of God. The Creator has a right to create people, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And yet, God is still fair. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. That God can make and do as He pleases. But Ephesians 2.10 speaks about what He's done with believers. Ephesians 2. Why don't you turn over there? Because we're going to we're just going to end there. Ephesians. It's whatever. Four books over. So Ephesians 2. This is that great. This is a great great message of salvation. The, the, the chapter begins that we are are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. But. Verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Look what he's done. He's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, God has, has had mercy on us. He has taken dead people, made them alive, raised us up, seated us with Christ, so that forever we display the kindness and mercy of God. It's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast, right? Consider the imagery. It says that we were dead in our sins. 
You know, I've heard illustration of salvation before that says we're drowning in the sea and God throws us a, a life preserver. We just need to grab on. That's not the picture of Ephesians 2. The picture of Ephesians 2 is that we are drowned and dead and at the bottom of the sea and God puts on his scuba gear, drives down, picks up our body, brings us up and makes us alive. That's what salvation is about. And it's solely by his grace. We were dead, but God makes us alive. That's by his grace. It's nothing that we've done. In fact, Paul's emphatic in Ephesians 2.9. It says, it's not all the work so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. Like this grace comes to us through faith. And he says, that's not even of yourselves. God grants repentance and he grants faith and he gives it to us. He's the one that, that borns us again. We don't choose to be born again. We must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But we cannot born again ourselves. God is the only one who can born us anew. And then he says this in verse 10. This is where I get back with my, my plastic illustration. That we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God creates us. We are his workmanship. We are a trophy of his grace. And this is what God does for us. And then he expects us to act inconsistent with that. He's prepared from works for us beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should obey the Lord and submit to the Lord and walk in his ways. And so it is significant here when the, the question comes up in Romans 9 about whether God is fair or not. He doesn't try to explain. He just says God is God and you need to embrace that and trust that. And realize that just the, the joy of what it is is that salvation comes from God upon us. And that's why we're secure is because God initiates it, he continues it, and he will confirm it. He who began a good work and he will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. And in that, those who believe can rejoice in the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. <coughs> Father, I would pray for us, a church family, God, that these things would unite us. Um, God, even I know in conversations about this doctrine, God, that, that people um, here at a church, um, even recently, have hated this doctrine and left. God, because they don't like this. But Father, I would pray that you would unite us as a church family. God, that you would unite us over these doctrines. It's not a, a pet doctrine of ours, God. It is just what the scripture says. We've just been working our way through the text. And so, Father, though, we would pray that, that we might embrace the fact that we can't understand it and grasp it. And how it is that you harden and soften who you will. How it is that you draw, God, according to your will. How it is you hide things from the intelligent and how you reveal things to babes. How it is that you speak a message to cold hearts and to blind eyes and to deaf ears. You preach that so that you can be vindicated in their rejection of things. We can't understand why it is that you would, would speak in parables. God, and the parables were designed to, to put forth eternal truth that people would not see and understand. That, that they might see, but not perceive. They might hear, but might not understand God, these are your mysterious ways, and we, we trust you with them. But I, I am thankful, God, for them. Even as Jesus said, said, um, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. At that very same context is, is where he said, I thank you, God, you've chosen to reveal these things and hide these things according to your will.
God, we don't know all the mysteries, but all we can do is offer the grace of God and salvation. That it is free in Christ to all who believe. So help us to be mouthpieces of that. Help us to be so amazed with our grace. That we enjoy our grace that you've given to us. That we would respond by extending your glory here in Rockford, throughout the world. God, help us in these things. Solidify us in these things. May we place where we are. We are, we are clay. You're the potter. And yet, God, we see that you are a, a merciful and, and gracious potter. The Lord is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. God, if you weren't merciful and gracious, if you weren't abounding in steadfast love, we all would be lost in our sins. God, but thank you that you have shown mercy to us in Jesus. Help us to embrace that. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust it. Even if we don't understand all of its workings or all of your ways. God, you are far above us where Paul finishes. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen, O Lord.